0: Now on to
1: the show. Hey everyone, this is Jerry Kopak sitting in for Taverly, coming to you from the mountains of Breckenridge, Colorado. When I'm not building spreadsheets as the finance guy for warm showers, I'm usually off riding my bike, either in Colorado or some remote mountain region in the world. Today I'm hanging out with Sana Gottby and Benjamin Ladra, bike travelers and activists and from Sweden who are cycling through 40 countries all the way to Western Sahara to raise awareness for human rights there. Hey, guys. Thanks for taking the time and joining me today. Thank you. We're
2: really happy to be talking to you.
1: Great. So this is a bit of a heavy topic. And before we dig into it, I want to back up a bit. Biking across 40 countries, as you know, is, of course, no small task. I spent nearly two years cycling through Africa and Asia, and the one common thread that drew me in is what I like to call the human experience. The landscapes, the cultures, the foods, they were all fascinating, of course, but ultimately it was the human that were the most interesting to me. Everyone that I met along my journey was inherently kind, helpful, and, and generous. Beyond your mission for this tour, are there any other things that, that drive you?
2: Um, I think it's like you say, it's um, meeting new people and uh, experiencing the world. Uh, I mean, in, firstly, it's obviously the human rights um, situation that drives us. And we're really interested in learning about new cultures and the situation in the places that we visit. So we, we're not only always talking about Western Sahara, we're also trying to learn about the local issues in the places that we visit so that we can travel consciously.
3: Yeah, we meet a lot of uh, interesting people and we also meet uh, human rights organizations along the way. So I think we have a different journey than most people because we travel with a human rights focus. Okay, I love that.
1: So let's get into it then. Tell us about Solidarity Rising and how
3: you got involved in this movement. Sure. Solidarity Rising is an activist uh, organization and uh, we're working towards... uh, the liberation of uh, all colonized peoples, and now we're focusing on uh, the Sahrawis who live in Western Sahara. Um, We've uh, only really done two major projects like this. The previous one was uh, called Walk to Palestine, and uh, that was uh, a walk from Sweden to Palestine to raise awareness about the human rights situation in Palestine. And now we're riding across the entire world to raise awareness across the human rights situation in Western Sahara. And we find that uh, doing these kind of long journeys is uh, a really effective method because you get to meet so many people and people are interested in talking to you because you're not just approaching them with a heavy topic that perhaps they don't know so much about, but you can also talk about this uh, experience that you're going through. And uh, it's a quite unique way of approaching this topic. Wow. So you walked from Sweden
1: to Western Sahara? To Palestine. To Palestine. I'm sorry, you said that. How how was that? How long did that take? How do you plan for something like that?
3: Yeah, the planning was... Uh, there wasn't so much planning in terms of uh, routes and stuff. Uh, I've learned a lot since then. <laughs> and actually, I met a guy in I Austria who showed me how to... Uh, how to make a daily plan of uh, how long you should be walking. And it's about 40 kilometers a day that you can walk after you've gained some uh, endurance. And it took 11 months, almost 5,000 kilometers. And it's the same for us uh, right now that uh, we're, we're learning a lot. I mean, you can't figure this out before you go. You have to figure it out on the way.
1: Yeah. There's ultimately things that you just, you can't plan for. Sort of the expression, you don't know what you don't know. Yeah, exactly. So... Whose idea was this trip?
3: Is this big? Yeah. Well, this trip, uh, the idea started when uh, during the walk to Palestine, but it really got uh, thoroughly dissected with me and Sana before uh, heading out, and uh, we started. Uh, now it's been seven or eight months ago. Okay.
2: Yeah, and uh, it was during the pandemic that we that, that the plan was actually to start um, uh, twenty twenty. And then the pandemic hit and a lot, lot of things got in the way. We were planning to start from Japan, not Sweden, but then oh. uh, Japan shut down in the entire country. It was impossible to travel there. And we were try- planning to take the Trans-Siberian uh, route, but then Russia, you know, the war uh, happened and there's been so many things um, that has kind of <laughs> blocked our initial paths um, that we were planning.
1: So how long do you think this will take, this trip through 40 countries?
2: Around two years to do the whole thing. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) It's a a long time.
1: It's a long time. So will you go continuously for two years or will you go out and come back to sort of reset or pick up supplies or we just keep going for two years?
2: Uh, We're currently on a a one month break in Sweden uh, because uh, we were landlocked. So we were traveling in Europe all the way to the Kurdish part of uh, Turkey but then from there it wasn't possible to continue because of um, what's happening in Iran right now and sure. uh, yeah Russia again and Syria so we decided to t- take a plane Um and so now we're in Sweden and then in just five days we're traveling to India to continue our route in Asia.
1: Oh I like this because I think we talked in the in the early interview that I had just gotten back from India as well. So we'll, we'll definitely come back to some India discussion in a minute. Um, speaking of India, so you kind of touched briefly on your roots. Uh, give us a, an overview because obviously, if I look at a map, you could head straight south from, from Sweden and it's four or five, maybe six countries. Um, but I know that that doesn't give you the same kind of exposure that you're, you're looking for. So give me an overview of your roots. And is there any significance to the number of countries or which ones that you'll be traveling through?
3: Yeah, so the uh, plan was to start in the country furthest away from Western Sahara and uh, travel uh, pretty much only by land with a few uh, boats all the way to Western Sahara. And that country happened to be Japan. Oh. So if you would imagine a long line from uh, Japan through Southeast Asia and crisscrossing as many countries as you can on, along the way, uh-huh. that would be the basic idea. But then, as Sana said, uh, Japan closed their borders and uh, we had already quit our jobs and rented out our apartment and we were ready to go. So we just thought, uh, hey, let's go towards Japan. Let's start from Sweden and go southeast and see how far we'll get before they open up. And uh, here we are eight months later and they have opened up. China is still closed, though, so we have to skip China as well. But so now we're going to Japan after India and um uh, We're gonna take it, uh, yeah. From we're gonna start on the original route basically (laughs) soon. So we've added basically half a year to the route going through all of Europe. Right, because I'm just thinking
1: if you are thinking about China, I mean China is is a could be a year by itself. It's it's massive. I spent three months cycling through the Tibetan Plateau several years ago, and I barely scraped even the surface of China. And it was an amazing experience, but it's it's massive.
3: Yeah, and we were considering going through Tibet as well, but we read okay. uh, with the Chinese visas and stuff that uh, they wanted uh, a security detail. They said it was a travel guide, but as we know, Tibet is under Chinese occupation, so it's really probably someone that's reporting to the police all the time about your activities. Yeah. And they wanted money to like bring this person along, like a lot of money every day, and we just couldn't afford it, and it felt wrong. Biking there with like, if you're going there, we thought we should be meeting with the activists and the people, but that's hard if you have the like police following you around every day.
1: Yeah, so I I had a similar thought process when I traveled through China and specifically eastern Tibet. So I wasn't in the Tibet Autonomous Region in Lhasa, where they do require a tour guide daily with you, and there is a daily tourist fee. And so you're right. It was very cost prohibitive. And it seems like I wanted to see China and Eastern Tibet and the culture. And it was hard because in that region, you had someone who was essentially taking you to places that they want you to see. Whereas that is, wasn't how I wanted to travel, nor could I afford that kind of travel. Mm.
2: So. Yeah. And I think, I think it's uh, something that we've disco- discovered while tra- traveling is, uh, that this is not uncommon. like um, mm. uh, a lot of countries do have restrictions and do have human rights situations like in Tibet, but as travelers we often don't see it or we don't know about it sure. unless we're exposed to it by some reason. And, and um, I think there's so many countries that have all of these yeah uh, unknown uh, situations and that's when you ask about the countries we're most excited about or interested in. I think it's those kind of places that we are interested in to learn about and, and not just travel, but also learn from the, the locals. Um.
1: So I'm, I'm curious, uh, you've, you've obviously walked through a lot of countries and now you're planning on cycling through even more. Are there countries that maybe give you a little bit more pause, give you more concern, make you nervous about going through? <laughs>
2: I mean, we we just visited Turkey for two months and it was a very hard situation uh, for many reasons. Um, So um, uh, Turkey doesn't like human rights (laughs) uh, defenders that much. Uh, They regularly imprison uh, people who work for human rights organizations in the country. For example, uh, a lot of people working for Amnesty internationally who have visited Turkey has been arrested. So we were very worried when we were going there and we usually travel with a big flag, Western Sahara flag, um, and we'd have to take it uh, take it down before we enter Turkey because we were very worried that they would, the police would stop us. Um, sure. And I'm I'm also Kurdish. My parents are Kurdish, and uh, the, the Turkish governments don't like really like Kurdish people. So we had a lot of these difficulties. And while we were traveling, we, we actually got stopped by police many times. And uh, we're kind, of, yeah. We were scared a lot, actually. Uh, there was a lot of military uh, surveillance. Uh, a lot of people we met, um, yeah, had been imprisoned or had a lot of tough situations um, in their lives. But so it was a mix. It was like super scary to be there, but at the same time, uh, so much hospitality. So we we met so many nice families. We had so, I mean, there was so much love towards strangers. Uh, in spite of them living in a scary situation like that. So it was very inspiring in that way.
1: Wow. I, uh, I, I've, I've cycled through Turkey, but obviously I, I wasn't flying a, a Western Sahara flag or anything like that. I wasn't on a, on a mission the way that you guys were. So I had a different experience and I, I can't imagine what that must've felt like to, to be put in those situations. That must've been, been scary and, and, and nerve wracking.
3: Yeah, I mean, we were interviewing a lot of uh, Kurdish people and human rights organizations. And uh, we had these interviews on our phones, our laptops and hard drives. And we knew that if the police stop us and uh, for some reason search through our stuff, it's a one-way ticket to uh, trouble. And uh, you'd never know like, what kind of trouble, but it's not something you would uh, like to find out either. So you're always on edge and you can't really... Th- trust everybody you meet either because you don't really know what they think about everything. Sure. So we are uh, hanging out with a lot of people, but uh, we felt like we had to keep the human rights part of it kind of under, yeah, like quiet. We couldn't really say to everybody what we were doing and that's also stressful. Yeah, it's,
1: as I mentioned, it's it's a much different banner, metaphorically speaking, to travel under. So I was traveling solo as an American to these places just as a tourist out of curiosity. So It's a a much different mentality, much different banner to travel on. So you definitely, I'm sure, attracted more attention than I did, or at least different attention. Because I definitely attract attention when I travel as well, because a lot of these places, people don't travel by bike. And so I'm automatically curious to a lot of people. But when they hear my story, they find out that I'm American and this is why I'm traveling just... For the love of travel, for the curiosity, for this connection, it's uh, it's probably a different experience than what you guys have experienced once you start really sharing and opening up about your stories.
2: Yeah. And then, I mean, it's also interesting because it invites people um, to talk about things that they, I don't think they talk about with regular travelers also. Like, for example, we... We were in Bosnia, and uh, obviously wow. they had a, a war in the country in the 90s, and we have a lot of Bosnian refugees in Sweden. We grew up with, with children uh, from from former Yugoslavia and those countries, uh, but we didn't really fully know about the details. But when we traveled there, and since we were human rights activists, we were able to talk to and meet a lot of people that I don't think regular bikers do, like uh, genocide survivors, people who experienced the war, people who... We're talking about uh, removing landmines and, you know, all of those things that Ooh. is so hard to understand. But we, yeah, we were, we were able to to meet the people and learn about it um, directly.
1: Yeah, that's that's something as people in, say, Western, I don't say Western Europe, I'll, I'll speak personally from people in, say, the United States, they don't really have an awareness because the last time we had a war on our soil was 300 years ago. And so it's it's a lot of people don't have that awareness that that perspective, but when you start getting into places where there's actually a war on their soil, it's it's it, it it changes a person. And I was in Israel cycling in the north in the in the Golan Heights region. So it was near the Syrian border and near the Lebanese border. And we're actually
3: in occupied Syria because Israel has been occupying the Golan Heights since 1967. Correct.
1: Yeah. And it, there's definitely, as you know, some contentious areas up there. And so there's, there's border walls, there's, there's armored up Humvees, there's people with guns walking all the time. And it seems, it was interesting to me because when I was up there, the people who live in those regions, I guess they just, you get, you can get used to anything. And so people just got used to it. And so I would stop at a coffee shop to get breakfast or or to fill up some water or I would take a train someplace. And there'd be someone with in military fatigues with a machine gun, or there'd be an, a a Humvee or something driving along down the street, or, or parked in a parking in a car park at, near like a neighborhood park. And it just seemed like people just got used to it. And initially, when I saw this, I was I was very nervous, but I was greeted with such kindness, such generosity, such welcomingness that after a while, I too got used to it. And so I guess it's maybe it's a, a testament to what you can get used to and, and what becomes your, your new normal it was fascinating to me
3: yeah and being an American you would also be super welcome there because actually sure. during the Trump administration uh, the US recognized the occupied Jolan Heights as a part of Israel and uh, right. as a thank you to that Israel renamed Jolan Heights to Trump Heights
1: I so I, were, I read, <laughs> some, I read you, something about that yeah that
0: was <laughs> interesting times for sure Today's episode is brought to you by BikeFlights.com, the leading bicycle shipping service and bike box supplier for cyclists. You'll enjoy low costs, excellent service, and on time delivery with every shipment. And you get preferred handling for your high value bikes, wheels, and gear. As a brand built around a love for the outdoors, they are committed to reducing environmental impact, and every bike flight's shipment is carbon neutral. Join the nearly 1 million cyclists who have used bike flights to ship their bikes, wheels, and gear with confidence since 2009 and see how easy it is to book, manage, and track all of your shipments. Visit bikeflights.com forward slash warm showers today for more information and to book your shipment. Now, back to the show.
1: Uh, When you guys were walking from Sweden to Palestine, how was that trip? Uh, Did you, I'm assuming you you went through through Israel and into Palestine and and crossed
3: into Gaza? That would have been uh, like... uh the way if uh, it hadn't been a political project and talking about the human rights situation. Yeah. But after having spent 11 months on the road uh, talking about Palestine every single day and about the human rights atrocities, the houses being demolished, the people being imprisoned and tortured and all all that stuff, you know, and carrying the Palestinian flag, of course. Of course. Uh, on, the, on the border, as with uh, everybody, the bo- all the borders in Palestine are controlled by Israel. So if Israel doesn't like you, you won't get in. And after six hours of interrogation and of them uh, telling telling me that they really don't appreciate people talking about Palestine and human rights and basically saying, fuck off, they just sent <laughs> right back and didn't allow me to enter Palestine. So
1: yeah, yeah, I I can't imagine what it would be like to, again, to not be American in traveling through that space with uh, with maybe a different agenda that you probably weren't, you weren't welcomed in a lot of places.
3: <clears throat> no, and especially not <laughs> into Palestine by the Israelis but was it an otherwise good
1: experience, did you did you meet some interesting people along the way?
3: I mean it was an amazing experience and as everybody who travels know, it's very very difficult to summarize in a sentence or even 10 sentences because a <laughs> whole year of your life where every day is like very intense you wake up in a new place, you meet new people and yeah. you go to sleep in a different place and every day is like that I mean it's just uh overwhelming and I met and it was really impactful. I mean it was really covered in a lot of medias and I it got a bigger reach than I could ever imagine. Wow. So it felt like uh, it was really an important project and there was so much love and support from especially the Palestinian people and just people in general because this is a question that even though many people have heard about it few people few people really know the actual situation happening there and a few people do much to engage with the topic as well. So it was really appreciated yeah, by for sure. all the communities in the countries I go. And uh, Palestinians are one of the biggest refugee communities in the world. I think there are about 7 million Palestinian refugees. Wow! So there was a lot of families taking me in in every country. I didn't know there were Palestinians in Bulgaria and in Serbia and Everywhere, but there were. So I found a lot of places to sleep very naturally. Unlike our trip now, because we're biking for Western Sahara, and the Sahrawis are a small community. they are only okay. about half, half a million people across the world. So you won't find Sahrawis anywhere. You, won't, you will find them in Western Sahara, in the refugee camps in Algeria, and the diaspora is mainly in Spain, because they used to be a Spanish colony. before Spain, okay. occupied Right,
1: because it's just south of Morocco, right? Exactly.
2: Yeah, it's uh, next to Algeria, between Mauritania, um, and yeah, it's it, it. used to be a colony for one hundred years, a Spanish colony. Uh, so the people speak Spanish, actually, um, although their first language is Hassania, a variant of Arabic. Um, but yeah, and uh, there's not a lot of them, <laughs> so, like Benjamin <laughs> was saying. <so>. Right. <laughs> not a lot of them in Sweden, for example. <laughs>
1: So it sounds like you guys have, have done some big adventures you you've done a big walking trip now you're doing a big bike trip and why why a bike as your as your platform I, I think I know the answer but I just kind of want to hear it directly from you guys like why did you choose biking as opposed to another walk
2: um, yeah so one reason is we want to cover as many countries as possible to to meet as many different peoples from different nations. And that yeah. way you can spread more awareness. And if we would walk through 40 countries, they would take like <laughs> the, the double the time, at least I think. Um, and yeah. obviously we wanted to travel in a sustainable way. Um, so it's, it's yeah, either walking or biking. It's, we don't want to fly everywhere, uh, being conscious of the environment and it's a nice way to, to experience the country. Obviously that's why we all bike and yeah. slow travel and everything.
1: Yeah, I, I know that from having done a bunch of bicycle tours myself through the places that we've already talked about. There's uh, there's just something inviting about somebody rolling through a small town or a village on a bicycle. Obviously, like as you mentioned, you can take a bus or a train or even a plane and still get to the same place, but there's just something about coming through on a bike that is it's disarming. It makes them more curious. There are places that I that I went through in India that I couldn't travel even through a single village without people dropping everything, coming out of their house, coming out of their restaurant and wanting to come connect with me. Kind of going back to this concept of what I call the human experience. There'd be sometimes when people would be driving in their car and would stop and turn around just to come talk to me. And so I'm guessing that with your experience, you'll probably have a lot of those opportunities as well just to connect with people
2: yeah and i mean uh, the hospitality i mean it's amazing as well it's no matter where you go in the world there's always people who are kind to you it doesn't matter if you don't speak the same language you have different ethnicities religions or whatever it's we've experienced that so many times that we're we're just biking on a road and suddenly someone stops and asks us to dinner or wondering if we need water or anything and it's really nice Uh, and you feel like all of the bad things that are happening in the world that you're reading about in the news. It's nice to know that people are kind. Um, I mean, people are kind everywhere. Um, we just have to remember that. Um, and I think it's because you see someone on a bike, it's very obvious that you're a, you're a visitor and maybe you're lost or you're in need of something and it becomes concrete for people to take action. And um, we just hope that we can, you know, inspire people to, to do that more and to show solidarity for each other.
3: We should I tell love the that. story, uh, since we're going to India soon, about the two Indian people we met in yeah. Montenegro. Wait.
2: Yeah, I mean, I don't know if you've ever biked in Montenegro, uh, Jerry.
1: Uh, I have traveled in Montenegro, but I've never actually cycled there. Yeah. So I would love to hear your well, perspectives. Well,
2: the... <laughs> I mean, we've traveled uh, through uh, 14 countries so far uh, in, our, in our journey and by far Montenegro was the hardest when it comes to the incline.
0: It's oh, mountains right.
2: <laughs> all over. I mean, the country is named um, the Black Mountain. Yeah. Uh, so it's kind of obvious, obvious that they have mountains. But we were shocked because there was this one day when we were traveling um, together with a German biker also. and. And one day we had to climb over 2,000 meters and the Ooh. incline was sometimes over 30%. So we oh, had to push on. our bikes. 30%? Yes, it was. The, it wasn't yes, it was
1: that, that's like climbing a ladder. It was
2: extreme. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and uh, it was raining. So so we when we started out, um, we took coverage in the nearest village and waited out the the rain. And we were thinking, should we continue or not? And then we decided, let's go. Let's try and uh, it was a bad idea because then a storm came and we were in the middle of this mountain and the nearest city was like 60 kilometers away and there was nowhere to, to camp because it was so steep everywhere. And we were <laughs> on this really, really um, like long, thin uh, road. So, so when a car came, there was nowhere to move, basically. So it was, it was very scary and the w- roads were getting wet. And we were thinking, are we going to survive? <laughs> it was kind of, you know, a bit scary. Uh, and then suddenly out of nowhere, this car shows up and an Indian couple steps out. And they're like, wow, uh, we just started biking. We live in UK. And uh, we, we can really appreciate what you guys are doing. Do you need help? And in the end, they offered to take all of our bags to make it easier for us. Um, so, they took all our bags in there, and our bags are very heavy, I might add. Like Benjamin's bike with the bags weighs 60 kilos. Uh, oh. And mine is like 40 something. Yeah, because we have cameras, we have a drone, yeah, we have computers.
1: So, <laughs> yeah. so, for those of us not on the metric system, as we all should be, but that's about 120 pounds. Wow, that is, it is incredible.
3: In the mountains, it's very heavy.
1: <laughs> it's so heavy. Wow. And you were pushing that up a
3: you said a 30 degree incline uh, some places. Yeah, yeah. Trying to bike it. It's actually easier to bike than push what it's I, that. Heavy. I agree. But sometimes I agree. like yeah. We were just miserable. And then these these guys come and they take our stuff and we had to like really trust them. And we did <laughs> because we were so desperate and uh, they offered us also to stay stay with them in their they were renting out like a cottage from Airbnb okay and after we took off, off all our stuff it was like like a renaissance like you realize that it's actually possible to bike up this hill like we're not weak <laughs> it's just the luggage that makes it so damn hard so then we were uh, going a lot so much faster we still arrived like 10 or 11 in the evening and sure. uh, freezing cold it was Freezing outside and also thunderstorms up on the mountain. When we like peaked the mountain, <laughs> it started with the lightning. And that was scary. We, th- we thought we were going to be struck maybe.
2: And as since we gave all our bags, all of our clothes, like extra clothes were in the bags. Yeah. So we, when it started becoming really cold, we couldn't really do anything. <laughs> and then after 2000 meters climbing, suddenly there was this really um, like steep... Um, uh, yeah, yeah, downhill. yeah downhill and uh we it, we were slipping so hard and then since it was raining okay. uh, benjamin's glasses were like fogging up and becoming all wet so he had to take them off and i had to guide him like
3: yeah on i was the... biking <laughs> that must have been somewhere. scary. she was just saying like
2: <laughs> in I mean, the downhill
3: was, yeah really fast she was saying like uh, there's a bump to the right that. there's a hole over there because the the road wasn't great either so it was full of holes and Right. Yeah, so thinking back, it was a crazy day. It was one of those days you're wondering like, I'm just going to be happy if I make it to tomorrow.
1: Right. And so I don't know if you ever heard the expression uh, type one fun and type two fun. Type one fun is this is enjoyable right now. I'm, ha- I, I'm having a good time in the moment. Type two fun is this is pretty terrible and I hope I make it out of this. And then once you get through it, whether it's a day, a week, a month, or a year later, you look back on it with sort of fond recollection and say, Hey, remember that time we were in Montenegro and I couldn't see, and you were guiding me down like, yeah, Yeah. that was really amazing. What a great experience that was. That's type two fun. So it (laughs) sounds like you are kind of on the border of type two. two.
2: (laughs) Yeah. And I mean, it's, it's like, you never enjoy the feeling of a, a warm shower, yeah. Or like a bed or anything after an experience like that. It's it just it puts things into perspective, really.
1: Yeah, and then once you get through it, you you realize you're safe. You have some food. You meet some amazing people, and you get cleaned up and dry. And then okay, it's like a big reset, and tomorrow's a new day, right?
2: Yeah. And we of exactly. course <laughs> want to give a shout
3: out if uh, if Sonora and Arjun are listening to this. You really saved us, and uh, they also wrote us like an India guide. Uh, with uh, places to see, stuff to do, and food to eat. So they really help us out. And you really meet amazing people that can become friends for for life, probably, when you're doing something like this.
1: I couldn't agree more. When I was in Nepal several years ago, I met an amazing Swiss couple. And I had been traveling by myself for probably six months. Met the Swiss couple. We were kind of going the same direction. And we decided to cycle together for what I thought would be maybe a week or two we were together every day for about 6 months and become the best of friends. And so you really do meet amazing people if you just I don't know, slow down and open your mind, open your heart and just become more welcoming to people and that was definitely my biggest takeaway with with traveling by bicycle, the people that I've met.
2: Definitely. Yeah, and it's it's a nice way to connect again to the rest of the world like even countries you're not traveling to, like you yeah. meet so many people by biking especially German people they're everywhere when you're biking.
1: Are, uh, you're right yeah those guys are so adventurous I, it's unbelievable
3: I, I couldn't go to a country without meeting somebody from Germany but it's also made us reflect you know uh, traveling like this is a privilege not everybody can do it yes. not everybody can ha- has the passport that we do the Swedish passport allows us to travel anywhere And we've realized that now we're going to East Asia, that uh, some countries actually require a visa. That's a new process for us because we're so used to just breezing through borders. And the the people we meet on the road in some countries, a lot of them are saying like, yeah, I wish I could do something like that. But, you know, for me, visas are expensive and it's not easy and I won't get it, so I can't do it. So we should uh, appreciate and really, we should bike more since we can. I mean uh, since we have this privilege we should do it and uh, do something with it also.
1: Yeah, I I completely agree. It's we are we are very fortunate in in the western part of the world to be able to travel this way, to be able to travel this freely and it's it's truly a gift. I, I agree. So, I want to just circle back one one last time here. So, regarding your mission to to Western Sahara, uh ideally with any situation like you're going through like this, uh, regardless of how dark the situation, the circumstances are, there's going to be some light that comes from it. Tell us about a desired outcome that you hope to gain from this experience. Are there are there measures for success?
2: Uh, I mean, one thing that's already happened, um, just like ha- not even halfway through, is that we've gotten so much... Love and support from Sahrawi people themselves. Like Benjamin mentioned, there's not a lot of them. There's like half a million in total. Mm. And about 200,000 live in refugee camps in the middle of the uh, desert for 50 years. <laughs> so they don't really, I mean, they just recently got internet. um And they have like a, a television, national television and radio station. And they talk about us regularly wow. and um, follow us. And um, I mean, it's it's not a lot of time in life that you can say that you've inspired an entire population yes. <laughs> anywhere. I mean, it's in, it's crazy when we think about it. Like we, because we don't see them. Like we're on the road, we're we're only thinking about being hungry and cold and all of that. But sometimes we have to remind ourselves, like, okay, they are actually living in a desert. It's fifty degrees in the summer. They don't have access to to a lot of food or water. Uh, children don't have a lot of things to do. Like uh, the unemployment rate is so high, and here we are experiencing the world and biking because we can, and and they're like cheering for us. So that's an outcome we've already seen. And I mean, it means a lot um, to them. Uh, so that makes us really happy.
3: Wow, and we're just really looking forward to arriving in the refugee camps. They are in Algeria and. Uh, meeting all the people and being with them for a while. And then uh, perhaps if the uh, security situation allows, we will bike into the liberated parts of Western Sahara. The country is divided by the world's second longest wall. The wall is 2,700 kilometers. It's huge, second only after the wall in China. And uh, on the eastern part of the wall, um, the Sahrawis are still uh, holding on to 20% or so of, of their land if we could finish our trip there that would be amazing but uh, it depends because there's a lot of landmines and there's a lot of things that can happen <laughs> sure but in either way we're just really looking forward to meeting the Sahrawis and uh, spending some time with them and uh, yeah just uh, sharing all our contacts that we met with them and uh, helping them in any way we can
1: you guys are truly inspiring and proof that you are definitely doing good things for people in the world and i have Really enjoyed our time talking to you. So for people who are out there listening to this, are there ways for people to find you, to learn more about your mission, your cause, maybe social channels? Yeah.
2: So we have a um, social media accounts, Solidarity Rising uh, mainly on Instagram and, and Facebook. And there we update regularly about our travel. And people can also contact us there for anything if they want to bike with us. We love company uh, on the road. So you're welcome also, Jerry, by would the way. I love <laughs> that.
1: That would be an amazing yeah. experience. Just, just no 30-degree slopes, hopefully. <laughs> you never know. And 50-degree yeah, temperatures and- <laughs> in the summer is really hot.
3: Yeah, we do have 2,000 kilometers of Sahara Desert to bike through on the final stretch. How do you even plan for that? Yeah. I have no
1: idea. Like I I do well in the <laughs> mountains. I don't do well in 50 degree temperatures, which is about 130 degrees Fahrenheit, which that might kill me. So I don't think anybody
3: does well. Well, the Sahara was maybe, but not us. <laughs> mm. Fair enough.
2: And well, also I want to add if there are hosts, yeah that are uh warm shower hosts uh, that are listening in any of the countries that we're traveling to we would love to meet you you yeah. have so many great experiences with hosts like it's it's really been one of the best parts of the trip like meeting families and and fellow bikers uh, yeah. who are so kind uh, to strangers it's it's been amazing
1: i I love that sentiment bikes I think just I don't know maybe this is a bit simplistic but i think if everyone could ride a bike i think it would just make everyone happier that's that's my philosophy on life so
3: (laughs) you're probably right
1: (laughs) well thanks guys for joining me today and i want to thank all our listeners out there for checking in for our conversation with sana and benjamin and as always give us a like a share on your social channels or just tell your friends these stories will hopefully inspire you to set off on your own bicycle adventure and maybe make the world feel a little bit smaller, one pedal stroke at a time. My name is Jerry Kopek, and I hope you enjoyed our show today.
0: Thank you for joining us, and we hope you enjoyed the show as much as we enjoyed making it. Wherever you are listening, please leave us a rating and a review as it helps us reach more cyclists and hosts around the world. Visit us at warmshowers.org to become a part of our community or on Instagram at warmshowers underscore org. If you would like to be a guest on the show or submit a question, please make sure to email us at podcastwarmshowers.org. At